Hi, I'm Ellie, and I've spent the last 10 years hoovering up pretty much anything that promises me enlightenment or inner peace. I love the esoteric, the mystical, and most recently, the physical practices that bring me into altered states of consciousness and allow me to experience shifts in the way I feel. What I also love is to share these discoveries with others. So I thought it would be fun to put together a collection of some of my favorite practices and have experts in those fields explain these to you simply and coherently so that you can decide which ones resonate with you. But let me give you one big clue. All roads lead back to home. And that feeling of bliss that you so deeply desire lives right inside of you. I am beyond excited about our first guest. She is an acclaimed author of two books, The Kindness Method and The Last Diet. Many of you will have experienced her work already. She's had a profound impact on so many lives with her beautiful and simple methodology, which really empowers us to make lasting behavioral changes in a really compassionate way which is what I love so much about her. She is a very dear friend of mine. She is like a member of the family. In fact, she has actually photoshopped herself into family portraits. She is one of the wittiest, funniest, cleverest, kindest people that I know, but I also hold her in very high regard as a person and I find her work to be so significant and so valuable. And so without further ado, I welcome Sheru Izadi. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Ellie. <laughs> Thank you. I've been so looking forward to this chat. Maybe you could explain to us what is the kindness method in a nutshell? Sure. Um, it's a series of exercises. Well, it's a book and it's an approach. It's a series of exercises essentially that help people to change their habits. And it's inspired by what I learned working in addiction treatment. And it kind of hands over written exercises and tools and advice um, that I found helpful both professionally and personally when it comes to making sustained changes that have self-compassion and self-belief um, at the heart of them. So who was your work originally designed for? Is it like a specific demographic or do you feel like anybody could use the method? Well, interestingly enough, I picked it up working in addiction treatment. So none of the work, um, none of the specific exercises are new to anyone who's worked in addiction recovery. Um, I've reframed them and stripped them down and put them in a certain order so that they can be applicable to any habits. But originally I picked them up because they were being used for really serious addictions to uh, highly addictive drugs and really ingrained habits. And so that's where I got, that's where the buy-in was for me because I was all, always interested in, um, in well-being. But I felt like for me personally, when it came to things like my eating habits mm. I had never found anything that resonated with me as much as this sort of like real life stuff that was being used in hospitals and prisons and um for me it felt like it had a real um well it was evidence-based but more than anything it, it it had really been tried out in the most extreme of cases so for me that was a real self so now I just kind of hand them over um so that they can be applicable for any habit and also so that people can just adapt them and use what they don't like and just sack off what they what they don't look mm -hmm. sorry take use, what resonates use, leave the take rest. what resonates with them and just sack off anything that they don't or yeah you know, I always try and give people a range of options based on what I've seen because invariably it'll be a combination of um different ones for each mm -hmm. person that that resonate the most 
So I've heard you say before that you basically are teaching people how to like themselves. Yeah. And to believe in themselves Yeah, and to root for themselves and essentially to make the same decisions that they would want a loved one to make for themselves. Because a lot of the time when people think about kindness, they think it's like doing literally whatever you want all day. Um, sometimes it is. But I think a lot of the time it's about asking ourselves um, whether we're treating ourselves the way that we would want the person we love most to treat themselves. And sometimes that doesn't mean making the easiest decision. Um, it means making the decision that serves us most tomorrow and in the week and in the month as well. That is actually such a good point because I remember hearing you once say, and this is probably the sentence that I think of the most, is if you, let's say, for example, you are trying to change your addiction to sugar. I'm speaking mm -hmm. personally. And then, so you've done really well and you, you feel like, oh, I haven't had sugar for a week and I'm doing so well. And then like one evening you just have like 12 slices of cake. Mm -hmm, and then yeah. typically the narrative for me would then be like, oh, I can't believe I just fell off the wagon so badly. Well, I'm screwed. So like mm -hmm. the next morning you wake up, you remember the night before you crammed like a whole cake down your gullet and you're like, well, I'm fucked. So I'm just gonna have another cake today <laughs> because what's the point? Like, and, and it's that is the point where I heard you say you need to create a new narrative. And it's about, it's just about what do you say to yourself the day after? Yeah, and, and the thing is, not only do you deserve to eat as much cake as you want, and there is no wagon, you're a grown woman. <laughs> so, Amazing. And the other thing is, um, if you, if we use sugar as an example, it's something that people often use to comfort themselves with. It is wildly comforting, it really can be. Um, for some of us, it gets to a point where it's not so comforting anymore and the, pro the, the negatives out outweigh the pros, but that's a very personal thing. But let's, uh, let's say, for example, sugar is something that helps you escape and um, you don't want to use it to help you escape as frequently as you do. There's nothing I feel like escaping more from than internal abuse towards myself. So it's actually really counterproductive to be mean to yourself when you're trying to change habits um, because you know, you're far less inclined to want to escape from a kind, nurturing voice that says, enjoy your cake. Good for you, you ate cake. Like, cake is delicious. Why wouldn't you eat cake? Um, and the other thing is, very often when we do something that makes us feel, ends up making us feel not so great, uh, the idea that we would do it again <laughs> in response to that is, yes. seems absurd when we say it out loud, but very often um, when we're in the moment, because of all this, like, I'm good, I've been bad, this is a Absolutely. good food, this is a bad food, I'm so naughty, I'm, you know, there is no wagon, there is no taking yourself off the hook, there is no hook. So then you can kind of just chill and go, yeah, sometimes I'll eat cake, and yes. it's delicious, and that's why, that's the end of the story. <laughs> that's exactly it, and it's literally just um, the action of putting a piece of cake into your mouth is, is just data, and then it's about the, the narrative that we create around the data. And, and I like to think about it sometimes like that, where you'll just like life is just data and it's how we receive it and then how we analyze that. And I would say for myself, and you and I have discussed this before, how um, my experience with curing my addiction to sugar, which I mean, I have literally been trying to, in inverted commas, cure my addiction to sugar for a decade. And I have taken extreme measures to do that. I've been to so many different doctors and naturopaths and I was told, oh, you need to go on a completely sugar-free diet. And I actually mm -hmm. went full on sugar-free for eight months. And I'm talking not one piece of fruit. 
let alone a spoon of honey in my tea, let alone like a delicious homemade cake, let alone anything else, nothing for eight months. And I promise you, physiologically, I was worse off. And mentally, my relationship with food and with sugar specifically was so much more complex because on the Mm. one hand I had a narrative of like well done Ellie you've done eight months without sugar I I walked around with this constant feeling of like a hollow self-congratulation kind of I've done really well and I remember the day when I broke that streak Mm -hmm. in inverted commas and I was (laughs) and also it's so funny because I came out of tray yoga like King's Road and I was like la and then you know there's (laughs) juice baby next to next Mm -hmm. to tray yoga (laughs) I'm familiar with its work. <laughs> I'm familiar with their work. And I was like, oh, just like pop in and get a green juice. So I popped in to get a, a green juice. <laughs> and... I feel like this story doesn't go, it doesn't end well. <laughs> there, are two, there are two different stories to do with green juice from Juice Baby. I'm only going to tell you one of them. And I now passed the fridge and I saw they had this like delicious, freshly made, like raw, um, rocky road, which is like made only of like honey and oats type thing. Right. And I was like, oh my God, do I dare? Like, do I dare? And I thought you deserve this, which is just such a (laughs) damaging sentence to tell yourself. I took the natural rocky road. I ate it on the way home and I cannot explain to you the guilt that I had and how I spent Mm. the rest of the evening trying to rationalize it to myself. Like, and how after that I went even deeper into the sugar cleanse and all that. So Mm. now fast forward five years to where I am now. um, I... And this is what we talked about personally recently is that I can say hand on heart that I have completely healed, in inverted commas, my addiction to sugar. Mm-hmm. And it has come from, it's almost like there's a specific yearning that I had in life, um, which was like a yearning to accept myself is the best way I can describe it, that I have come to fully accept myself in all my glory, warts and all. And somehow with that full self-acceptance from one day to the next, my dialogue around food changed. And now I love eating cake when it's there. I no Mm. longer label it as good or bad. And I don't have this like constant, like constant kind of underlying desperate craving and I don't use will I don't need to use willpower anymore not not Mm. to eat sugar and whenever someone says oh how did you cure your addiction to sugar there's no it's nothing to do with with any of the conventional ways that people usually no I think a lot of the time an unwanted habit whether it's sugar or whatever it is like hitting someone around the head too often like (laughs) I don't know why that's the next habit that came to my head but I just wanted to show you that it just doesn't matter what it is very often it's not it's not a problem, it's a solution to something. And when we frame it as a problem, yeah. then we don't really get to the core of what it's yes. trying to solve. Another thing is, a lot, of my, a lot of people who I speak to, they're far more concerned with not thinking, not obsessing over food all day. I think that's probably the, the thread and not yes. feeling disempowered around food. Like now I've done it, what's the negotiation? How much have I done? Have I been bad? Does this mean I can be bad for the rest of the day? Does this mean I may as well have had yes. a pizza? And all this like con- contradictory advice about what turns into sugar. The fact is, I think that that period of abstinence you described, some people actually find there is a freedom in it because you don't have that ongoing negotiation of how much you can have of something and how much you can't. It's just quiet for a bit. That's true. The, the problem comes, of course, when you, when you do have it and then the volume gets turned up enormously and it's very disempowering. And I think, um, and then you're reminded that 
learning not to consume a substance does not teach you to consume that substance differently. It's a very noble and difficult thing to do and it, it, it has its value, don't get me wrong. And for a lot of people, that will be the route that serves them the most overall. That said, you know, they'd be the first to tell you that that does not empower them to know how to deal with that substance differently and to see it feature differently in the context of their everyday lives. So now you've demonstrated yourself to be able to have and enjoy a piece of cake over and over again consecutively without beating yourself up and seeing that nothing bad happens. So your body's going to calm down. You're going to stop beating yourself up about it. And you can almost go back to genuinely enjoying that one episode of joy yeah. and not have it mean anything else about the day or mean anything else about you. It's just, you know, delicious ingredients. Absolutely. And it's just, it was just so interesting to me that although I've known of your like the central tenet of your method for years there is such a difference between hearing it and learning it as a mental concept to truly embodying it and it's it was just so interesting to me that um i was reading this um book called the gene keys which a lot of my community are really into which is a teaching and in that book um richard rudd the author was saying so often so many of our shadow patterns will translate into food issues because it's just this human desire this constant pressure to evolve the wheel of samsara as it's called this constant pressure to evolve and be better and it's it's inbuilt into our dna this like desire and it and ancestrally this would have been a desire to survive but now that we don't have this survival problem anymore we know we live in comfortable houses and we have food and all this stuff so that the modern day version of that is this pressure to evolve mm -hmm. and it will so often translate into a yearning for whether it's it's often food or money i find that food and money seem to be two themes that are so common and and i just found it so interesting that as i really focused on full self-acceptance and I, I wasn't even the the sugar issue it never once entered my mind but it was through working so hard on just working so hard more like allowing full self-acceptance which is our natural state to unfold I then suddenly realized the byproduct of that was a complete yeah a complete releasing of the hold that I had over the narrative around sugar and that's when you and I talked about it because I was like oh my god I've, I've actually embodied I've embodied this now. I think that's a really good point, the byproduct element, because I think a lot of the time people make the mistake, and I certainly did this, of, again, looking at the solution as a problem, isolating that problem and deciding to uh, outsource or apply some specific problem-solving approach, whether it's signing up to a self-help guru or whatever it is, which, mm -hmm. of, of course, there is a lot of value in. But the fact is, then the next time something shows up you've got to specifically go looking for something to do with that as opposed to generally building your self-esteem and your self-belief and your self-compassion so that you believe in your capacity to spontaneously make decisions that leave you feeling empowered and that are in your best interests overall not just okay what's my rule for when chocolate is two meters away from me <laughs> how about what's my rule for when i feel at any point that i'm faced with a decision for my body you know yeah that's a lot more empowering um and yeah. also not even rules wise like exactly. what am i doing today to make me feel good what exactly. am i doing today to make me feel strong and then everything else will be a byproduct of that you're so right i was going about to flag up that what's my rule and then you you 
like even yeah, no. took a step back from that because that's exactly it. And we had been discussing this before how, like for me, I would say it's been an eight, it's been eight years. I worked out today, eight years of cultivating that self-acceptance and it, you know, it is not a clean linear process by any means. Mm -hmm. Like you were saying before, you don't just jump straight into goop. You don't just go straight to the, the yoni egg, shove it in and expect miracles. To <laughs> and, and I mean, I get messages all the time from people being like, oh, hi there. Can you please like advise me on the best um, like course I can take for enlightenment? And it's like, no, it, it's, it doesn't work like that. The Dalai Lama fast, fast track. <laughs> yeah, <boot camp>. exactly. <laughs> it's an incredibly, it can be anyway, an incredibly messy process of self-discovery. And if I look back to myself um, in 2012, which I would say was like my rock bottom, um, you know, I was in the midst of like horrendous infertility and then I, I was in a marriage that just wasn't right at all for either of us. And I was in a court case and like, it was just like the worst, the worst year ever. And, and somehow during that rock bottom, I just stumbled across an article about self-love, which is a phrase I had never heard before. And it was quite new at the time because now self-love is like, you know, passe prac. But at mm -hmm. the time it was like quite a new thing. And <laughs> passe is not a new thing. <laughs> Grandma. <laughs> Sorry, go on. It was hip at the time. I haven't heard the word passe in a long time. Yeah, okay, I know, I don't on. think I've ever used it. So no. I remember the exercise was like, look at yourself in the mirror. For, like it was basically a course on like how to become like healthy. And it was like the first mm -hmm. two weeks are about cultivating self-love. And I was like, what? And I remember because I found my diaries. Um writing down like what does self-love mean and it and one of the things I wrote in there was like sleeping in without feeling guilty and at the time that concept because you go from basically being in self-destructive behavior patterns let's say into then often a very rigid approach where you're like I have to get up at four in the morning and meditate mm -hmm. for 45 minutes and mm -hmm. then if you like sleep in you feel so guilty so my point being that it doesn't matter what you do if there is not a foundation of like gentle self-acceptance then first of all, nothing you do is going to make you feel good. And people, we can all sense energetically what lies behind every action. So you can just feel, I mean, I've been to enough workshops where I can feel the person leading the workshop is riddled with self-doubt, just like all of us are. Mm -hmm. And in a way it makes you empathize 10 times more with them. But in a way it's like, actually, you need to go back to square one. We all often need to go back to square one. And it's definitely the hardest step to take and the hardest thing to master, you know, learning how to truly love and accept yourself and to lay off yourself and to have only an, a narrative of acceptance. And it doesn't mean not taking responsibility or ownership for what you do. It's the opposite. It's actually looking at yourself full in the face and all of your mm -hmm. behaviors and all the things you've done and accepting the shame, but just always having a loving narrative like you would with somebody you love. Yeah, and I think there's a really there's a really good point you made there in that when I think there's a danger when our self esteem is low that when something we think something is bad or we get criticized in some way that we think we're bad as opposed to disassociating ourselves from a behavior that we're demonstrating. Yes. And I think a lot of this kind of goes back to treating ourselves with the same compassion we would treat someone else, a curious compassion. Okay, you did this, you're not delighted with it, you don't wanna do it again. Where did it come from? How can I help you? Um, why are you finding it difficult to change? Not you're bad, you're stupid, you're lazy, <laughs> good for nothing. I'm the, lazy, the lazy one. 
lazy. I mean, that's a huge. So many of my community worry about have like an issue around that word, like it's a trigger. around laziness. Yeah, yes, being called lazy because, and and also, you know, I'm very much into human design, mm-hmm. and I, I've told you what your human design is, which is a projector, mm-hmm. which didn't surprise me at all because a projector is there to guide and to guide others, to observe systems, to tweak, to become Mm. a master in that and to guide others. Projectors also should only work for a few hours a day. Like they need a lot of rest. They don't have a natural unlimited energy source like a generator would, which is me. So the amount of projectors that I'm close friends with who are absolute geniuses in their field and yet do not have that staying power to be working all day. They just have short bursts and then they need to rest. They often have a nap. And the stigma that they feel around napping or resting or, or not having this motivation to always initiate when they're not supposed to initiate, they're supposed to guide. They're supposed to sit back, observe and guide. Mm. And it's just such a shame, isn't it? That we all hold ourselves to this, to the same universal standard. Yeah. And I think also, you know, in the spirit of it being anyone's prerogative to, to change in any way that they like, starting from an honest place is your best bet anyway. So, for example, I, I, I'm very open about the fact that when I got my advance for the kindness method, I um, <laughs> basically just woke up at midday and living my best life. And everyone was like, are you, are you getting up at dawn and going to the river and like <laughs> writing yeah. by a lake? And I was like, no, I'm sitting on my couch in my pants because someone just gave me a lump of money <laughs> to write something that I know really well. And I'm living my best life. And, and then from there, when I was totally cool, where my alarm was on like 10 a.m., 11 a.m., whatever. Eventually, I was like, you know what? Now that I'm honest that this is my wake-up time, I actually could do with waking up half an hour earlier. So for the average person, that wasn't a thing. And so now I do, I, I do wake up early. And that wasn't my thing. Whereas whenever I started to go straight to that place in like a rash kind of, you're lazy, you've got to wake up at dawn, you must go to a lake. (laughs) I don't know why people think lakes help people (laughs) write books. I feel like so many people are like, so are you to go to a cottage by a lake? (laughs) No, I'm impressed. (laughs) Jesus. Who do you think I am? But and also, no, you know, no offense to me or any self-help writers, but I'm not writing crack Harry Potter. <laughs> it's modular. <laughs> I don't need to be at a lake. <laughs> anyway, the point is, you've got to start where you're at, and you've got to start realistically. And I think that's why sometimes people become really disillusioned with things like diets mm. and programs that other people have given to them, and they'll be like, right, well. I can follow this for a while, but where does wine come into this? Because I love wine. <laughs> and oh, yes, yes. So it's like, well, you know, and for me, I don't, I don't give a tiny, I, I'm not fussed rats about ass. wine. <laughs> you're rat's ass. I didn't know what your like parental guidance was going to be on this. Book. <laughs> okay, well, there you go. Um, yeah, I don't give a rat's ass about I wine. Yeah, please. No, don't be silly. Not give the bottom of a rodent. Not a tiny rodent. A small one. No, you're so right. And um, and if we can slightly like move into terminology that I have mused on this. Again, I kind of alluded before I said about taking something in as a mental concept and then embodying it. Mm-hmm. And it's so true. If you go from zero to yoni egg with nothing in between by the way a lot of people don't know what yoni eggs are (laughs) okay would you like to explain to the listeners what a yoni from what i understand it's a jade egg can be jade sure that one puts 
in one's vagina. Exactly. To, I, I'm actually lost. That's where my my education has gone because I clearly just read the headline, which the was Gwyneth yes. Paltrow is charging people a lot of money for eggs for their vaginas. And um, to be fair, to be fair, the practice of the jade egg is a lovely practice, and I have. A lot you of have one in right now. I I had one in earlier, but it plopped out because I haven't been doing <laughs> enough exercise. Is that what it's for? Exercise to keep it yes, in? Like, like people, people the problem vibe. with Goop is that like she, again, she's gone straight to the, that like exclu- exclusionary terminology where she's not really explaining it. The whole point of a jade egg is just to strengthen your Kegel muscles because oh. as we get older and have babies, or even if we haven't, <laughs> our Kegels become, can become floppy and flaccid. You know what will help you then if, if that's what it's for? You know what will do an even better job? What? Get a real egg up there, babes. <laughs> if you can do that then you are a man my it's son it's true it's true if you can do that i love it no but my point was if you go from naught to young naught to jade egg then ugh, i've like practically forgot my train of thought oh yeah about embodying so mm-hmm. so making I it think, realistic for yeah, you yeah it's think. like embodying it like there's a such a difference to learning something and then embodying it and that can happen quickly or it can take in my case eight years and to truly embody something means that it's no longer a choice that you need to make. It just is your state of being. And I, think, I completely agree. And I think this is where yours and my work crosses over because my work is more around, um, you know, connecting to, to the divine or to plant medicine to a higher power and like showing people how to create practices around that. And yours is more about, you know, cultivating a relationship with yourself and, you know, empowering yourself to become like a, a loving witness to your thoughts and your behavioral mm-hmm. patterns and your tendencies and to reprogram those in a way that's rooted in self-acceptance. Yeah. And, and I think, in, oh, so, sorry. I no, beg no, your pardon. no, go on, go on. I was just going to say that I think the idea with embodying it, when we bring that back to habits, say for example, one, one part of my work that, that really resonates with people is this idea of living life on hold. So before I changed my eating habits and, um, I was always thinking, right, when I've achieved this goal, when I've lost weight, when I've done this, when I've changed in this way, then I will be deserving of yes. lighting my fancy candles, yes. um, getting up every morning and like doing s- stuff that had nothing to do with it. Like I will reward myself with self-care when I've met this goal. Now, aside from the fact that, you know, we are deserving of that regardless of our goals and we all know that you never really achieve that, you know, once you get to your goal, you want another thing and you never get there in this, this, this elusive state. The other thing is, if you're trying to make it easier for yourself to change a specific habit that you consider unkind, whatever it is, that's not serving you in the way that you're doing it, then I think it's actually a lot more powerful to start doing all the things you think you're going to do or be deserving of once you've achieved that goal. And you will notice unkind habits stick out like a sore thumb. So if you wake up first thing in the morning and in every possible way you can, you treat your body with kindness and invest in making it feel good. Anything from like, if you see a patch of sun, go sit in it for one minute. If you, whatever it is, you know, make, put on music while you have a shower, all these tiny little tweaks. Mm. I genuinely believe that they then, it, it then means that when you're faced with that decision of how you treat your body specific to the habit you're trying to change, it's, it's far more easy to notice that it's not aligned with the other choices you're making. Yes. And you can spot it and, Frankly, when you feel good, it's easier to do difficult things. And when you're giving your body this message all day that says, 
I matter. Yes. That then leaks into decisions that you didn't have to plan for. Spontaneous decisions. You'll feel more yes. boundaried. You yes. feel more like your, your time and your energy is not unlimited and it matters. You become more discerning about where you put it. And all these lovely other byproducts that are so much more important than the original yes. habit. Yes. You're so right. And I guess what I, I would, what I spot. <laughs> I know. I'm a very intelligent woman. <laughs> That's like Cherie's default response whenever me and my siblings are like, oh my God, you did so well. You look amazing. She's like, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> don't be jelly. Also, what I, would spot, what I would spot in what you just said about seeing the patch of sunshine or having like a nice bath or lighting the nice candle, all these things. It's so true that that is um, going back to the, the oft used phrase self-care. Like it's for me personally, now the way that I treat pretty much everything I do, I try and bring like a ritual into everything, not because of the concept ritual is something that I'm striving for, but I just really like making my life as lush as possible like the word lush is a huge part of my life I've noticed <laughs> but it's like it's like like I, I remember doing this massive exercise called um cool desired feelings with Danielle Porritt where you like go deep into your subconscious to like figure out what your core desired feelings are like say that your your core desired feeling is freedom then you would um, if you really want to live in a massive house and you realize that actually it's because it makes you feel spacious then you realize, oh, spaciousness is a core desired feeling for me. What can I do in my life to make me feel spacious? Mm. And I realized that it's such a good one. And I realized for me, I was like, there's a specific feeling that I love. And, and then I did like this huge, like hours. And then I, the word ended up being lush. And I was like, yeah. for me, because I That's love, lovely. because I love every, and I'm also a Taurus so that's like part of who I am. I, you know, I like everything to look nice and to be nice and to smell nice and to taste delicious. And it's so true that if you basically carry out your day in increments of lushness, whether it's waking up at 12 or whether it's like lighting a really nice candle that night, whatever it is. And it's also about the narrative that we have along the way, because you can just have like a really loving lush narrative. It's true that when something pops up like a pattern or a behavior that you've witnessed in the past and you're like, I would like to change that. Suddenly you're like, oh, there it is. It's, po it's popped up. It's plopped mm -hmm. up. And then you're in a much more like grounded, loving space to be like, oh, there it is. And you can witness it rather than being it and being at the mercy of. Yeah. Of your you emotion. can observe it. You can observe it. And you know what? I think more and more I notice when you, when you speak that regardless of what we all decide to call it and the angles that we want to come from mm. from my perspective what you've described now is mindfulness mindful self-awareness lifting yeah. out of ourselves and observing without judgment and with yes. and with compassion um and the other thing is you know aligning your values with your behaviors and making sure that your value that your behaviors move in the direction of your values and so things like acceptance and commitment therapy have been saying that for a long time we know that through nlp and cognitive behavioral therapies dialectical yes. behavior therapy. all of these things have been so it's interesting that we all kind of come at it from a different way exactly. by the way another question for you ellie because i don't know about astrology oh, God. so you being a taurus mm -hmm. if i'm a pisces uh -huh. does that mean that i don't give a shit pisces? on anything looks or tastes or smells like babe you're no what a pisces i mean i'm not an, an expert at all Pisceans, like the main thing that springs to mind is Pisceans are watery and emotional. 
and you're actually watery. You're very watery. Like it's the it's a water meaning like you've got earth, water, fire, air. It's a water sign. I mean, I hope that everything I'm seeing is right because I'm not an expert. But every Piscean that I'm friends with is like really emotional, and I love that about Pisceans. That they're, they're very magical. Whereas, like, that's all right. Whereas, like, Taurians. Get that on the old Tinder profile. (laughs) I'm very watery. I'm very watery and magical. (laughs) It is because, because of course, we could go down a whole rabbit hole here about like allowing your emotions to to express themselves. It's very cathartic. There's a lot of magic to be found in that because your emotions can be a compass. Like you, we talked before about you mentioned about having your values and making sure that your life aligns with your values how do we even figure out what our values are a lot of us don't have the first or we all have a different way of figuring out who we really are depending on how our human design and our and and our human makeup and actually Mm. for me personally as a generator in human design with emotional authority some people will know what i'm talking about some people won't like the way that i should make decisions is based on how i feel emotionally so, mm-hmm. um, so where you said before about like making sure that your values align with, with your actions that again, and it always is rooted in learning who you really are and accepting it because yeah. it, you can't do any of this really important self-discovery work unless it's on a foundation of gentle witnessing, as you said, mindful, can't remember how you phrased it. Um, but it's essentially yeah, compassionate. Yes, curiosity, witnessing, and not, not like feeling like you are living moment to moment at the mercy of of your thoughts. It's, mm-hmm. and I do find that that first stage is the is the most difficult. Like learning how to wrench yourself out of out of it and to be able to watch it. I think it's easier if you look at it as unlearning. Yes. Yes. Deprogramming. You know, people will be like, they're returning to themselves, etc. In, in my case, that was more specifically about like stupid fad diets and oh. um, the idea that I can only be worthy of doing certain things when I've achieved certain goals. I had to unlearn that. And by the way, it's not all on us. Society, Absolutely. Western society is very much, I think a lot of the time we put a lot of it on ourselves. And why haven't I achieved this place where I don't care about what I look like? And why haven't I achieved this place where I can be completely myself and completely unboundaried and not unboundaried, completely boundaried and yes. know myself. And it's like, well, because it's been a long time that you've been being told that that's not an okay way to be and that that's going to upset other people and that it's going to make you, especially for women, it's going to make especially. you unpalatable in some way. Um, so I think it's about, for me, one of the saving graces was that it's not about finding yourself. It's about meeting yourself. So yes. that can be a quite a nice relief. Do you like that one? I'm so, I love it. I'm so, <laughs> so glad you brought that up because there's like a thousand things you said in there that I have contemplated on. Um, I think from the second we're born and certainly from the minute we go to school, we're being deprogrammed and reprogrammed and we're being deprogrammed out of our authenticity and we're all being programmed with like societal values and like information and it's we are 100 percent the result of our conditioning yeah we need to be by the way also we're not like some i I mean i'm certainly not a believer that we're just i mean if we're going down the conspiracy route here i'm not coming (laughs) with you we should probably know but i do think that to some extent, like, you know, like, for example, with the 12 step program, that's yeah. a program. Yeah. They would, uh, 
a person in the in 12-step addiction rec recovery would tell you that we're all working a program <laughs> of course yeah. you are yeah you you have a set of rules yeah. and things that you consider norms and they are given to you by society by your parents by your yeah. experiences etc some of us get to a point unfortunately for a lot of people it does happen at that sort of rock bottom point where you know post post-traumatic growth or kintsugi or anything that people are coming at it from where you have to kind of stop and go do i want to choose my program do i get to choose bits of this because otherwise you know you are working a program it isn't like all of a sudden we're saying to people now you care about this and now you care about that it's actually saying you've been told to care about this up, up to this point if you're happy to continue doing that then great but if you want to look at your program and see where you can change it please like there is an opportunity there and i think whether it's through the routes that um i go down or the routes that you go down which again i have enormous respect for and i think a lot of the work that is being done now uh, the more I read about things like plant medicine, it's a really exciting time mm. for evidence base. Um, yeah. But whatever it is, I think it's about people just realizing that they, whatever route they take, you're not, you don't have to work the program you've been given. Again, you can, there's, there's some people who've had a great program all through their lives and they're completely cool with it. I know a couple of those, of those people mm -hmm. and they're fine. Me too. Me too. And they will never read a self-help book yeah. and they don't need to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're so right and you know what know. like it's all good like yeah exactly and i think that's good. another thing there is space for everything now you know yeah. when i see people getting annoyed with other people on the internet i kind of think look we've really got to a stage now where there are thousands and thousands of, if not millions of sources of information so when it comes to self-help and you know uh, harmless ways of helping ourselves of course um there's really no need for us to a subscribe to one thing entirely mm. and b to be hating on any other approach when i, I feel like the more and more i read i'm looking at a i'm looking at a two bookcases right now of self-help books and i feel like if i'm honest they could come down to about five themes I know. <laughs> we're all saying the same it's true. stuff we're all saying the same stuff which is actually really <laughs> lovely because it just shows like those few teachings which really i think always come down to one which is what you teach self-acceptance <laughs> thank you very much it, I, re I really do that's why i wanted you to be the first in this mini series because i think it has to be the foundation on which everything else comes all self-exploration has to come from a desire to just keep relaxing into acceptance and it's so funny because i've spent eight years trying to almost reach upwards if you imagine like clawing upwards to try and find answers outside of myself and to go more and more higher and higher and higher and now since october i've noticed like this this full reversal of that where i'm just coming back down and that's the process of embodiment where i'm going back into my physical body back into being a human remember we're all human beings on this planet celebrating my humanity my moods like my temper tantrums my emotions my laughing like my mistakes all of it and it is just the most liberating thing and dude i don't mean to self-love shame you but you're having temper tantrums <laughs> i well, put it this way put it this way i definitely have uh, i was about to say anger issues but that no i have trapped anger i and you know what like 
now I notice it rising up. I'll give you an example. I was on a walk yesterday with, with Simon and I was in a really good mood. And then out of nowhere, this fury came into me because he said something that like he looked at his watch and I was like, why do you have to clock watch on our nature walk? And I felt it was like this strangling feeling of pure rage. And because I'd had like a day where I was, you know, living aligned with my values and all that stuff we discussed, I was able to be like, wow, where did that come from? So interesting. And we discussed it and it's like a cloud just going over the sun. That's being human. It's chemistry. Exactly. It's and chemistry. I, yeah. And I think the fact, I think you've just, demonstrated beautifully that you just saw it as part of your experience yes. whereas if you had spent the next 24 48 hours beating yourself up about it absolutely thinking that you were possessed or whatever yes. yeah, exactly. you know, on account of your shaman. rage <laughs> no it's <laughs> on true on account of my rage on account of my rage it's so true <laughs> no, so, you're so know, right. when, i think a lot of the time it is the story we give things that makes them scarier especially in a time like this where we're all so exposed to each other. It's such a blessing, but it is such a, a delicate um, thing where you can so often look at other people. And I mean, we all know this, we all can slip into that comparison, but even people who would consider themselves very evolved, it's always going to be sneaking in through the back door if you're not, and you just have to be aware of it at all times. But it's just the, the more I go on, the more I realize how like teachings like yours are just really the only thing that matters. It really <laughs> is. It Can is. you be my hype man? <laughs> hype you man. know what I think it is ultimately is that I was, I, I love self-help books and I've been reading them forever. Um, and I think we need to have more frame. We need to be given more frameworks to work out what works for us and feel yeah. free to take the bits that serve us and leave the bits that don't yes. without judgment yes. towards ourselves or indeed the person who's given it to them. Don't at me. Anyway. <laughs> so, you know, I think it is just about handing over more frameworks because now more than ever, I feel like people are on board. Even in the last three or four years, I've noticed such an enormous shift um, in terms mm. of people being on board with helping oneself as a concept. So true. Um, so what a time to be alive. What a time. Ah, what a time. Okay, so just to wrap this up. Um, so you have two books out currently. I do. The first is The Kindness Method, which mm -hmm. sort of explores what we've been discussing today. Mm -hmm. The second is The Last Diet. Yes. Which is maybe more aimed at people wanting to work on their relationship with food. Yes. It's about um, unlearning dieting behaviors that if like me you if like me you believe that dieting actually left you worse off physically and emotionally um then and you, and you want to unlearn all that confusing stuff that doesn't make you feel great and still manage your weight in a way that's kind and that you're happy with then that's the kind of bridge that i've offered but um you don't need to have read the kindness method to read the last diet yes. you can read them in isolation because the kindness method is more broadly about habits mm -hmm. and the last diet is a lot more personal and about my experience of changing mm -hmm. my eating habits yeah um so yeah i probably well, shouldn't say that it's not, not a very good salesperson absolutely no <laughs> but you don't need to <laughs> not at all because i think um like I would, wouldn't necessarily call myself a dieter, but my relationship with food, is it 100% healthy? Definitely not, or it definitely wasn't. So I found the book very useful. And I think um, 
if we dig deep in, in ourselves, probably a lot of us would. And they're both absolutely brilliant books. And I can't wait to see what else comes, comes out of you in the future. Thank you, Ellington. Strictly book related, of course. <laughs> and egg related. <laughs> and egg related. I'm scrambling and, uh... some for you right now, babe. <laughs> what do you want, poached? Scrambled? Surely they come out poached. <laughs> oh, you're so gross. <laughs> anyway, classic us to finish on this, on this note. But this was such a pleasure. Thank you so, so much. And I can't wait to, yeah, to see what, what's coming up for you. The pleasure was all mine. Well, that was a freaking amazing episode. What a pleasure to speak with Sharu. I hope you found that as useful as I did. To buy Sharu's books, you can go on Amazon or any good bookseller. You can visit her website, sharuizardi.co.uk, and she also has a fantastic Instagram, which I highly recommend visiting just for her stories because they're often very funny. To learn more about me and the work that I do, you can visit my website, elliesilen.com, or my Instagram, elliesilen, which I spend a lot more time updating. Next week, we are speaking about all things plant medicine with my very dear friend, Mackenzie Marsloff. I'm very excited about this episode, so make sure you stick around and catch that.